Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week, we give you the best news, views, and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost. Each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the CEOs, leaders, founders and clinicians who are driving the health tech revolution in the UK and beyond. This is our first live show of 2023, so it's very exciting to be back, back in the hot seat again. Um, there's just a difference, you know, doing something live. I love it. So we're going to try and make this a good show uh, to kick off what is going to be an amazing run. So check out our socials for the upcoming guests because they are this, we're starting off with a good one, but they get they get really, really good. So um, as regular listeners will know, I'm the CEO and founder of something called PocDoc. PocDoc helped put the show on. Uh, it's a smartphone based blood testing, allows anyone with a smartphone to test themselves for a range of markers. Um, currently, we have partnerships with the NHS and a whole bunch of other people. Um, I won't go on about it too much, but it's all very exciting. Mostly so we actually were on the BBC News. So the BBC News ran a big piece on us this morning. Um, go oh, to our cool. YouTube channel to check that out. Um, we were highlighted as one of the two most exciting smartphone diagnostics uh, companies in the UK. So, you know, given that there's three, I, I think that's a win. So, um, you know, top two out of three. So anyway, thank you to all of our UK Health Radio listeners um, for being so loyal and for tuning in again. We love being on UK Health Radio with Johan and his team. Um, whether you're listening, though, live on UK Health Radio, or whether you're listening through um, Spotify or any of the other podcast platforms or watching on YouTube, thank you very much for joining in. Over Christmas, I actually did some stats. I looked at the analytics. We have people who either listen or stream or download from over 30 countries, including places like Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand. It seems like we've got a little bit of a hotspot there in Southeast Asia, which is great. Um, so on today's show, we have the man, the myth, the legend, the Ori Oracle, Jason C. Foster. Um, CEO of Ori Biotech. Now, um, don't panic. We're going to unpack this. But Ori Biotech are a cell and gene technology manufacturing company in the tech biospace. So like I say, we're going to unpack that because it's, it's super, super cool. Um, and I, Jason explained it to me when we were in Malta at a health tech conference. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to get him on the show. Um, there's a huge amount of excitement about this sector, particularly um, I guess certainly over the last, you know, 18 months, two to three years. So it's going to be great mm -hmm. to go into that in detail with Jason. Um, Jason is also well known as being one of the nicest and most supportive leaders in the health tech industry. Um, I know that he's been supportive of, of me and PocDoc. Jason was actually one of the first people that I actually spoke to about the company. And his initial reaction was like, wow, that's going to be tough. And I was like, yeah, no, <laughs> <laughs> turns, out, turns out it wasn't wrong. So anyway, Jason, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great, Steve. Thanks for having me on. And uh, congratulations on the success with PuckDuck. It, it has yeah. been hard, but you guys are making it happen, which is great. We're doing, we're doing what we can do. You know, I think that, that we, we can get into it a little bit, but but healthcare is is different to other industries, I think. It is you know, indeed. It's fair, it's fair to say. And I think that we can 
we can go into that. I think what's interesting about the show and one of the reasons I love doing the show is that we're a very broad church, you know, mm. which is like we've got people that listen who are extremely technical. And then we've got people that just have a general interest in health. And we try and kind of span span that, um, you know, because I think that people see stuff and they're like, oh, why can't I get that on the NHS? Or how does that work? Or, you know, where do drugs come from? And, you know, all of these things that we try and we try and unpack. Um, yep. So let's normally we would kick off with like, what's your background and how did you get here? But I think let's just make sure everyone's on the same page to begin with on the show. So let's start with like the background of tech bio and kind of get on the same page about what we're talking about and what cell and gene manufacturing and why, what all that kind of stuff is. So why don't we start with that background and then we can get into kind of how Ori a sort of the, your take on it. And then we can kind of go from there if that's okay with you. Sounds great. Yeah. No, it's uh, as the, your listeners will quickly realize I'm not a scientist, so I, I can only speak in, in simple layman's terms because that's all I can understand, but uh, we'll, we'll give that, a, we'll give that a go. <laughs> yeah. Let's start um, there. Let's start there. And if we need to dial it up a notch, we can, we can try and come back around. <laughs> yeah. We'll take the questions as they come. But I mean, most people listening will be familiar with the, the word biotech, you know, the biotech revolution that's happened over the last 10 or 20 years, bringing a whole new class of medicines beyond what you'd get at the chemist in, the, in a you know tablet jar uh, and bring some exciting um, therapies to patients. Uh, now we're flipping that around and calling it tech bio, which is actually how do we apply the disciplines of technology and engineering to biology? You know, nature doesn't play nicely. It sort of does what it wants. It's very hard to control. Uh, but how can we make uh, biological processes repeatable, reliable, uh, high quality and low cost, uh, and to do these things in manipulable, manipulable, you know, ways that we can predict what's going to happen uh, ultimately. And that's really trying to apply the discipline of technology and engineering to biology. And that's kind of the beginnings of where Ori starts. Um, and using that same analogy, if anyone on the line on the, uh, uh, who's listening is familiar with, of course, the tablets we get from the chemist, that was the first pillar of medicine. Those, you know, paracetamol and others that we need to have in our daily lives. Then there's a second pillar, which has been biologics. Those are made by antibodies and um, the antibody-based medications was a massive um, breakthrough and innovation that's led to all kinds of exciting um, treatments for all kinds of range of diseases. Cell and gene therapy is what they're calling now the third pillar of medicine, uh, where we actually are creating living personalized medicines. So that sounds confusing because it is. Uh, so what we do, <laughs> what we do is we take your immune cells. So we take Steve's immune cells out of his body. We draw your blood. We take your T cells out. The T cells are the soldiers are, that march around your body, finding bacteria and viruses and killing them. Um, we take them out. We essentially teach them how to find cancer. So they're, they're always circulating in our bodies. And when someone has cancer, uh, for whatever reason, the cancer overwhelms their immune system. So their natural uh, immune system, their natural soldiers can't fight the cancer off. Mm -hmm. uh, and so often we try things like chemotherapy, which people will be familiar with, or maybe sometimes a, a transplant of some kind, a bone marrow transplant or a stem cell transplant to try and boost those soldiers up and make them more more strong so that they can overcome the cancer. Uh, sometimes that doesn't work. And so what we then can do in this third pillar of medicine is to take those soldiers, take them out of your body, genetically reprogram them, essentially teach them how to find the cancer and then grow them up. So instead of having millions of them, we have billions of them 
and we reinfuse them back into Steve. Mm-hmm. All of his soldiers go back and they flood your system and they go and they find and kill the cancer. So it sounds like science fiction. Uh, when the first time I heard about it, I'm like, can we even do that? That's amazing. Yeah, like, I mean, I, the way you explain it, it's one of those things. I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But I, does it work? What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, you know, cell gene therapy is one of those kind of overnight successes that's taken 30 years. Um, but, you know, today uh, we have cures for cancer uh, that can be um, administered via this method. So mostly blood cancers. So you'll your audience will know things like leukemias and lymphomas, myelomas uh, have been we've proven clinically effective cures for cancer uh, in those types of diseases. And now this kind of of intervention is being studied across a whole spectrum of different types of cancer. So solid tumors like pancreatic or ovarian or lung, all the way through to things like type one diabetes or autoimmune disease, cardiovascular disease. So this intervention could have wide reaching implications on human health if we can get it right. And ultimately today's biggest challenge is how do we make these products um, in a high, high throughput, high quality and low cost way. So how do we make them widely available and democratize access? And ultimately, if you boil already down to its essence, that's what we're doing. We're trying to make these products widely available for the patients who need them. Okay. Let me just back up a second, see if I Go for it. like got the got the gist of what we're talking about here. So um this concept of cell and gene therapy, so the three pillars, the second one being antibodies based um interventions like what would would that include chemotherapy in that one is that an antibody based one or is that different no um things that there's treatments biologics they're often called that are treatments for things like rheumatoid arthritis or um, they're usually infused medications that are um you know this kind of next generation and some of the best selling products like humira enbril these kinds of products that are the largest products in the world today are biologics okay okay so and this concept of cell and gene therapy which is taking someone's cells reprogramming them to fight the thing that's in their body be it cancer or a another thing mm. you said that's been around for that conceptually scientifically that's been looked at for 30 odd years or something in some way yes yes it has um, been being studied for that long yeah but was the challenge it sounds like it wasn't necessarily well at the beginning i'm sure but as we got closer to today's date it was more around was it like they moved through a phase where okay we can do this but at such a small scale and at such a high cost that it remains in sort of un- theoretically possible, practically unfeasible land. Is that fair or not? Fair? That's kind of where we are today. Actually. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So okay. the first product was approved five years ago um, in 2017. There were two products approved, one called Yescarta, uh, which is owned by Kite Gilead and one called Kimraya, which is made by Novartis. Okay. And those products were the first commercial realization of this method uh, that okay. they had been testing for 20 or 30 years. I mean, it's incredibly complicated. I, I said it in one sentence. We genetically reprogram them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean it's super easy away. for me to say, yeah, really hard yeah. to do. Uh, so yeah. uh, incredibly, researchers at UPenn and other, you know, MSK and other places that are really deeply steeped in this um, figured out that you can use actually an HIV virus. You take the uh, the HIV out of the virus, but viruses are very uh, good mechanisms for transferring D- DNA into cells. That's what they right. do. That's their bread and butter. Right. So actually you could take the, the HIV out, essentially you put this um, payload in this DNA and that you want to get into the cell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but it took a very long time to figure that out and a very long time to perfect it, to make sure that it works. Right. Um, so that's kind mm-hmm. of one of the, one of the many challenges they've overcome in the last 20 years. And what, um, like when they figured it out, like what kind of scale of number of, I guess, 
because obviously presumably there are millions of people that would want this or would benefit from this yes but i'm guessing that their clinical trials were based on doing it a few hundred times sort of even to less prove that it really okay yeah right yeah so you're talking so about I, going from what i mean what, what kind of scale up are we requiring i mean it's it's pretty hard pretty pretty big right it is it is so yeah traditional clinical trials as you know you'd have hundreds or thousands of patients that are tested um in when you're when you're studying uh, cures for terminal cancer um you want to do it as quickly as you can uh, for as as many patients as you can, but it's a small, you know, the, the FDA requires a much smaller cohort, maybe even yeah. 20 or 30 patients yeah. to prove because the alternative for these patients is, is not great. So, yeah. Um, and the FDA has put, I would say uh, an, an inordinate amount of, of regulatory innovation thinking into this field to say, this is a whole new modality. We need to think about it differently. And that, oh, that so they actually is, have, they have stepped up and figured they that have, they, they have completely. That's yeah. pretty is good. It, it is. It is. And, you know, it's sort of, you know, through the COVID period as well, you see regulatory innovation there. Those aren't two words that often are put together. But, you know, mm -hmm. I think the regulator has really been focused on how do we deliver this next generation of medicines. So uh, back to kind of where we're at in our evolution. So the first products were approved five years ago. Um, in the first few years, a couple hundred patients would be treated, something like that. Okay. Now, five years later, the two largest companies, uh, uh, Gilead and Novartis, between them treated last year close to maybe seven or 8,000 patients. So that's maybe okay. three or 4,000 each. Okay. Now, that's a huge step up from 100. Uh, but these are indications that have hundreds of thousands of patients that could be um, could benefit from these therapies. So we're reaching a very, very small percentage, less than 2% of the patients that could benefit from these therapies yeah. are able to get access. And how are they making the decision about access? Um, how is that well, decision being made? I mean, as you know, it's sort of the uh, healthcare is... Um, it's a complicated issue. Healthcare is a business in the US uh, yeah. and it's a right in the UK and the rest of Europe. Uh, and we're talking about the Western world now. Most of the rest of the world doesn't have access to these medications at all. Right. Uh, but a lot of this is determined by cost, uh, by the ability, you know, patient access is limited by how much governments and payers are willing to pay, able to pay right. for these therapies. So unfortunately, they have been relegated to last line therapy um, in most places. Uh, where a patient would still have to go through multiple rounds of chemotherapy um, right. and likely fail those, fail also maybe a transplant uh, before they would be eligible to get CAR-T therapy or cell therapy. Okay. So these are fifth or sixth line usually. Okay. Uh, they cost somewhere between half a million to four or $5 million a patient, depending on what right, right cell now. or gene therapy you're talking about. Uh, and so because of that, you know, access is relatively restricted. Uh, and even if we could give access to everybody, which was what we'd love to do, but can't do yet because of cost reasons, we just can't make them. There's not enough manufacturing capacity to make that right. many products. Uh, because, the, it, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, because unlike, you know, a small molecule, a, a tablet, where we're just stamping out millions of tablets and we're shipping them out through the distribution system. These are bespoke. Every time we make one, it's for one individual patient. It's just for Steve or it's just for Jason. Right. Uh, and so making, doing that at scale makes it extremely difficult. Yeah, I would imagine that, that 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 does. But is there any dispute amongst clinicians or, you know, healthcare services that if cost weren't an issue, right, or rather if the quantum of cost could come down by orders of magnitude, that this would move from number six to number one in most some cases? Or is it still up for debate? I don't think it's up for debate that these should be earlier uh, in the treatment pathway. So certainly second line would be, I think, universally agreed upon. 
Right. Um, and first line is coming. I would say the clinical evidence is very, very strong. You know, we've got 10 year longitudinal data showing patients cured of cancer. Uh, and that, you know, and not having to go through chemotherapy and some of these other very harsh treatments, it makes a lot of sense. So if we could make them affordable, they would be accessible for everyone so long as we had the capacity. There's two issues. One, cost. Two, ability to manufacture. Those are the big things that are standing okay. in our way at the moment. So let's go Let's go into those things. And how does Ori play into those? Or how did Ori kind of come to be? Yeah, so um, Ori was the brainchild of uh, Farlan Verage and Chris Mason. They were two professors at University College London who met there with deep experience in bioprocessing and uh, regenerative medicine. So they've been looking at these kinds of issues for, you know, 20 and 40 years between them, looking at um, all kinds of different methodologies to bring medications of this type or, or treatments of this type to, to patients. Uh, and a lot of this is a, is a, is a, biology kind of an engineering problem how do we move fluids around how do we put the right ingredients think of it like baking a cake i have to have all the right ingredients put in at yeah. the right time at the right temperature yeah. and now it pops you know something that's, that's valuable at the end uh and they were very close to bruce levine's lab at upenn bruce is one okay. of the pioneers in the car t therapy space who invented what is now chemraya mm -hmm. and um bruce presented some of his early data from clinical trials showing great clinical efficacy and Farlan and Chris said, wait a minute, how are we going to make these things? And they were sort of drawing on the back of a napkin, these giant facilities and trying to figure out how we're going to make them and really struggling to figure right. out how they were going to be affordable. Uh, and they tried out every technology that existed um, in any of the other adjacent fields and couldn't find anything that worked. And so that wow. was the kind of genesis moment of Ori is to say, well, we need to build something ourselves then because otherwise we're going to run into the issue where we have incredibly effective and, and clinically effective therapies they can't reach patients. And what's the point of having cures for cancer if patients can't get access to them? So how, I know it's hard to say, but is this, it doesn't sound like from the, the intro that you gave, this isn't just restricted to blood cancers. It's not even restricted to cancers. It, it has a potentially very wide ranging application for a lot of different conditions, right? As a technology platform or process or methodology. It does. Yeah, it's been being studied across lots of domains. Um, today, it only exists in cancer. Uh, they have sort of CAR-T therapy or cell therapy uh, in six approved uh, products in all hematological tumors. So those leukemias, lymphomas, myelomas we talked about. Yeah. Uh, but every single solid tumor type is being studied. Uh, and, and also there's been some really good data recently in things like autoimmune disease, things like cardiovascular disease, type one diabetes. So there's lots of different ways we could apply this technology. Um, but as you think about those other potential uses, you go from millions of patients to potentially tens of millions of patients. And so we yeah, have even, even greater even trouble serving yeah. them. Exactly. So like conceptually, just so I can understand some kind of a baseline to kind of try and sort of communicate it to the listeners, but also for my own understanding, like, for one person's therapy right now to be made, yes. what kind of length of time are we sort of talking about and the kind of scale of whatever infrastructure is involved in doing just one person's one treatment for one thing? So it takes roughly uh, 45 days from the time you harvest the patient's cells uh, to the time they're returned back to that patient as a therapeutic. So it's quite a right. long process. Uh, we hope Ori will help shrink, you know, shorten that time. Uh, and as I said, quite expensive. So each individual patient's therapy costs somewhere on the order of 400000 to a couple million dollars. 
uh, just for the therapeutic costs. And then there's additional hospital costs on top of that. So we really have to tackle right. both the time and the cost at the same time to make it widely available. Cool. Well, look, we're going to stop for a two minute commercial break. And then I want to come back and get into like how Ori is tackling those two things. Cause I think that it's the way that you phrase it is really clear about what the challenges are, right? What the problem is, what the challenges are, what the benefits are. And like, actually, weirdly, I understand now why it's called tech bio, right? Like you said, it's around applying engineering and technology manufacturing scale up principles to a very clearly validated biological principle, as opposed to the other way around, which is sort of like, you know, trying to create a technology company off of the back of a small molecule to create a new drug and drug discovery and things like that. So cool. All right, great. I love it. Look, we'll be back in two minutes with Jason C. Foster, CEO of Ori Biotech. Speak to you in a second. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Apples and pears, beef and skittles, cider with Rosie, common or garden, ant and deck, fish and chips, mum and dad. UK Health Radio and Health Triangle Magazine. Each is good by itself, but enjoying both is always better. Add Health Triangle Magazine to your monthly health regime. Check it out at ukhealthradio.com. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest, Jason C. Foster, the CEO of Ori Biotech. So um, before the break, we were talking about how this revolutionary new cell and gene therapy was uh, theoretically feasible. Well, not just theoretically feasible, was was feasible. And there are products. It was really around the engineering scale up manufacturing challenges, which is where Ori has kind of focused itself. So without wishing to give away too much of the secret sauce, clearly, um, how have you, conceptually, how does one tackle this, what clearly is moving from 7,000 patients a year to 100,000 patients a year to a million patients a year? It's like, that's a big, and also reducing costs at the same time and reducing speed at the same time. Yeah, when you you put it like that, it makes it sound easy. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like you, it's just... Just send the things off to get, then you get your thing back, and then yeah, you just good. sort it out. Yeah, yeah. I just got, I just got a few, few more gray hairs while you were talking. Um, <laughs> no, I think you know we've got big ambitions as a company to really democratize access. So it really combines, let's say, three elements um, that come together to try and solve this problem uh, in a holistic way. One is novel biology, so we have the ability to do biological biological processing. Um, so we use a bioreactor to grow cells, to genetically reprogram them. It's, it's kind of where the the cells that we harvest from the patient go into. And then we recreate the body environment that's healthy for them to grow cells. So we need to have body temperature and you need to have the right environment. So we do that 
but we do it in a novel way that allows us to manipulate the cells um, in a way that helps them grow and helps achieve the, the end result, which is the, you know, obviously the, the point we're focused on. <laughs> the second pillar, so biology is the first pillar. The second pillar of worry is really around automation. So the ability to take the human beings out of the process where they're not needed. Today's yeah. In today's world, we have highly manual process. You have really experienced, very highly trained people doing effectively like rote, rote manufacturing tasks. So I'm moving moving cells from one place to the other using a microphone. Yeah, using one of my prepared. Yeah, exactly. I would, yeah, I'd imagine or that's what it's like now, right? Like on the news, when any whenever they run something about labs and they have like a dude just yeah. preparing stuff. Like exactly, like, it's those people. Yeah. Except for in our in our world, they're like totally gowned up, goggles, like fully yeah. you know, as the GMP environment. So it's even more yeah. restrictive. But you've got a lot of people in there that are very highly skilled that are doing a lot of manual operations. And that's probably not the best use of their PhD is to apply, you know, to that that task. So we try and take the rote manufacturing tasks off the individuals and put it on automation robotics, let the system do the work there mm-hmm. and let them apply their skills elsewhere. The third pillar, so first pillar biology, second pillar automation, third pillar data. So Ori is a cloud native data platform allowing us to see inside the cell growth chamber, the bioreactor in real time. So we try and understand why those cells are doing what they're doing. And this is where the kind of biotech becomes tech bio, right? We're applying yeah, technology right. to really understand why biology is doing what it's doing so that we yeah, can then predict the outcome in the future, yeah. which is very difficult. We're a medical device manufacturer, right? Like, you know, and so just, well, not even that, we're a technology company and even thinking it through from a tech company perspective, whatever you're building as a tech platform you generally put in place an ability to to diagnose what's happening in your platform, your process, your yeah. whatever it happens to be. And you have, you know, automated checks and QC steps and, you know, things that you can kind of make sure all every step of the way what's actually happening, you know. And yeah. actually, that was one of my questions was sort of like, how on earth do you do that when you're trying to figure out what's going on in the inside of a cell? Right. That's that's kind of insane. Three more gray hairs just popped on my head. Yes, no, uh, <laughs> um, no, you're exactly right. It's incredibly difficult. So every the amount of cellular var- variability is as different as every individual on the planet, right? right. Our, well, your cells well, and my by, cells by, will by, behave by differently. De- by definition, right? You're making exactly. individual therapies, right? Exactly. So your right. cells and my cells will behave differently. And actually, my cells might behave differently given where I am in my disease progression. If I'm more healthy, it may behave one way. And if I'm sicker, they might behave another. So you have to be able to account for that variability yeah. somehow. And this data platform, really, the way we think about it is taking, first of all, we're just trying to collect the data. Let's just figure out what to collect yeah. and collect it in a way and structure in a way that we can then eventually try and make sense of it. Because right now we're on paper. Most of the field uh, manufacturers are in lab notebooks, you know, scribbling notes yeah. uh, or in pa- and or in paper rat- batch records. So when you release wow. a product for a patient, there's a 500 page or more yeah. Paper batch record that a human being leafs through one page at a time saying, okay, yep, that, that happened. Okay. Yep. That was out of spec, but, but that's safe for the patient. Yeah, it's not going to fly it, it's, to this. That is not going to be, that is always going to be a bottleneck if we stay on paper. So it's the, that third pillar of going from collecting the data to then generating information from that data. So in, in our everyday lives, we use the two words, data and information, almost interchangeably. Yeah, right. Throw them around, right? Ooh. But well, the way we kind of think about it is data is just, it's just the bits and bytes. It's the ones and zeros. Then yeah. the information is like, how do we visualize it? How do we try and make sense of it? Uh, so that the experts then have the right uh, data they need to turn it into information and act on it. And then the third pillar, which we are nowhere near yet, but we'll get to is insights. So the system then begins to learn 
when it sees certain things that happen first a hundred times and then a thousand times, it says, wait a minute, something's happening here. There's a pattern. And this is where you, th- you hear about things like machine learning or neural networks, or you're able yeah. to apply artificial intelligence to say, actually, there's a pattern here across big data sets and lots of different places, but we're pulling it together to make sense of it. And that will help us bring products to patients much more quickly. So we think we can shave about three years potentially off the drug, de- de- drug development timeline for a new cell therapy, which now takes about 10 or more years to do. And we think we can dramatically reduce the, the amount of money it takes. So the is short that because you take, can, um, on the drug disco- on the drug development, is that because you can shorten the cycle time, right? Yes. Iterative yeah. cycle so, time. from Exactly. Okay. So that, that kind of let us stop and sort of figure out what we know and then design another experiment, which all happens on paper by hand now, can happen very quickly in an iterative cycle. And also the transfer pieces between a preclinical process. So what happens today is in a lab somewhere in an academic institution, they create a process that will transform immune cells most often into a therapeutic. They say, okay, we think this is going to work. And then they have to go into clinical trials to test it, obviously, in humans to make sure it's safe and effective. So they transfer it from a lab into a clinical trial that takes work, that takes time, that takes money, and they have to fundamentally change the process along the way, which is hard. And then once they've done that and they've proven it out on those 10 or 20 patients we were talking about, they again have to fundamentally change it to get to scale, to say, I'm going to treat 10,000 patients. Now I have to change my process because my one that would treat 10 patients isn't going to work anymore. And then they have to prove to the regulatory body that it's still safe and effective after they've fundamentally changed it. That all takes a lot of time. Tech transfer takes years. All those pieces take a lot of time. And at the moment, are these people sort of like, is there anyone really, because it sounds like there's not necessarily a really solid go-to for the, for this type it's sort of like when it moves out of the lab environment like where does it go to be like because because this industry of tech bio is still just sort of getting going right yeah there's the the technologies that are being used in the field today are being pulled from different areas and that weren't really designed for this purpose so they're being right. kind of repurposed from other fields maybe stem cells or other pieces right. and and consequently they don't work very well together you know they're not really designed for that purpose but we're trying to jam the square peg in the round hole um, and that's where we are today. And a lot of it remains manual. You know, we still need those really expert people moving stuff around, kind of gluing the bits together uh, that weren't meant to to be uh, to be used together. So that's really where the industry is today. Companies like Ori uh, are trying to innovate and trying to pull the pieces together in a seamless way and in a bespoke way for this application to make sure it can deliver what the companies need who are making these therapeutics. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So I've got two more questions on this, then we can kind of jump off on something else. So the first question I have is more of a technical one, right? So you've got, and you you know, I'm not trying to give you any more gray hairs, but I'm interested because obviously our background with PopDoc, we understand the regulatory environment and all of the checks and balances and QC steps and final release QC and in-process QC and all this kind of yeah, stuff that yeah. means that the product that leaves your building, whatever building that happens to be, is safe and accurate and if used as intended, will deliver what it's supposed to do and won't cause any harm to the patient. How how do how do you do that at like a cellular level? You know what I mean? Like that's I don't know. Maybe that's just like, like, yeah, lack of experience <laughs> with. And again, I'm not looking for the secret sauce, more just conceptually, right? Yeah, no, it's it's been a an area of debate in the industry quite a lot, and back and forth with the regulators trying to decide. Well, how do we determine quality? Like you know, and, yeah, yeah. And a right. lot of these first products, you know, they, they didn't have the data they need needed really to draw the line in the sand and say, you know, above this line is good and below this line is bad. Right. So we've had quite high failure rates in some of these processes because we weren't quite sure. And so as as the industry often will do, it's quite conservative on making sure patients are safe. But when we release these products, even if they fail 
the quality check, fail the quality release. Ultimately, these patients are terminal cancer patients. They don't have any other options available to them. So sometimes the companies will release the products on what they call compassionate use. They just give it away to them to say, well, we hope it works. And if it works, great. But otherwise, you know, you're going to probably die anyway. So, um, and many times those products still work. They're still clinically effective, which tells us two things. One, they didn't have the data they needed to set the specification in the right place. Yeah, right. And and two um, is that they have a process that's kind of out of control from a, from a quality perspective, which isn't, isn't ideal because we're, t- we're putting a variable input. So your cells or my cells all behaving differently through a standard process. And lo and behold, we get a variable output. Of course we do. Yeah, exactly. Like if you're doing something genuinely new, then you need to figure out a new way for QC. We have this debate on our side all the Mm. time, which is how are we QCing this? How are we doing this? Because if you've got the wrong QC in place, you either release stuff that shouldn't be released or you don't release stuff that should be released. Right. And, And as I think is massively critical. It is. It is. It's, and that's not at the just end for you, but just for everybody. Just, yeah, no, yeah, exactly. And and that's at the end of the game. So after you've already spent the time and money to make the product, uh, but even in process. So like just in in you know the standard kind of way we think about things. If you put a a consistent input into a consistent process, it's easy to show that you've got a consistent output, right? You do the same yep. thing to the same input every time, you get the same output. Here we're putting a variable input in. Right. We're defined by a consistent process because that's what the regulatory process lays out for you. Mm-hmm. And we're getting a variable output. So what we need to do is use the data that companies like Aurea are collecting to to modify the process around the needs of the cells as they go through yeah, the process. Yeah. So you have an adaptive process that says, actually, we know what Jason's cells need. Steve's cells didn't need this, but Jason's do. And yeah. so that that kind of thinking is the next generation of where we're headed. We're not there yet, but it it, it makes sense in this field of of really highly high volume personalized medicines. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, look, in a really exciting way, there's just so much new ground to break through here, right? And it's actually, it's this brilliant area where you're not trying to prove necessarily the scientific principle. It's already been proven over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's actually like, how do you, how do you solve this issue of the scale up and addressing these challenges, which is, I think is actually really exciting, right? Because you're mm-hmm. no longer in the land of does this work or not? You're like, That's everyone right. knows it works, Yeah, right? Yeah. We got it. Like, there's sure. a massive opportunity here can help millions or billions of people if we just crack a few of these things. Now that's like massively downplaying it, but yeah. it's, yeah. I think it's a super exciting area. It is. It is. You're exactly right. There's no longer a question of whether or not this intervention or this modality will work. It works for sure. We can definitely cure cancer. The question is, can we do it for all the patients who need it? Right. And like from a patient's perspective, because we always like to do this on the show. I mean, I think we might've covered it slightly, but you know, this, this getting this right matters because why if if we don't get this right let's say in the, what, what what what's the i guess what's the you know the different trajectories we crack it we go one way we don't crack it we kind of continue yeah. bimbling on as we are yeah um i mean 10 million people a year are diagnosed with cancer another right. 10 million people a year die of cancer every year so there's a massive human impact uh, of cancer and that's keep you know keeping aside all those other diseases we talked about that we might have a shot at so just in the oncology field, um, there's millions of people that could benefit. And ultimately, the, some of the therapies that we use today, which are very well accepted, like chemotherapy, for example, have significantly negative consequences, even if they work. So if they work for the cancer, um, we met um, uh, a young boy called Opie Jones and his parents, Lucy and Lewis, have started a foundation called the Opie, Opie Jones Foundation to really support pediatric uh, cell therapy patients. Um, okay. 
And, you know, they're really arguing for broader access to say, actually, you know, and the way Lucy puts it is, um, CAR-T was just such a kinder therapy, you know, it's sort of, yeah, chemo right. is pretty brutal, uh, even if for adults. And then if you're a young, you know, Opie was less than one year old. I think he was one year old when they, oh he was so young, diagnosed with oh leukemia. He's oh now more than a year cancer free. That's the great news after wow. getting CAR-T therapy. Um, but you know, it has hugely negative impacts, not only on the individual themselves, the patient, but also their families and trying to negotiate all this stuff. So if you could have kinder therapies that are extremely clinically effective, do them earlier. So there's not so many rounds of these kind of really harsh therapies, it'd be better for everyone. So I think that's really the goal. The goal is ultimately, if we get it right, we'll have lots of patients that have the ability to be cured of cancer. Uh, and that is a fantastic thing. Many more than are today. Right. Uh, if we get it wrong and it doesn't work out the way we hoped, um, my fear is that, you know, cell and gene therapy, which is a very promising modality, might be relegated to the dustbin of history and kind of like, oh, this is a nice research project, but we can never quite get it to work. And so right. we just moved on to something else. Uh, and you've seen that recently, actually. There's a there's a product called Zintegro, uh in Europe okay. that um, was meant to treat a rare disease indication. Uh, and the manufacturers bluebird uh in the u.s and they were asking 1.6 million dollars per patient for it um it's a curative therapy and an indication that's very serious and doesn't have a lot of good treatments so you know in a lot of ways you could say well that's justified yeah Uh, but the regulators or the kind of payment authorities particularly starting in germany just said we can't afford that Uh, and so ultimately it's the worst outcome for everyone they had to withdraw the product from europe so all the money the billion dollars they spent to develop the the product was wasted at least for the european population payers couldn't provide access to their to their populations and and patients couldn't get access to this life-saving therapy so you know these issues around how do we make them and how do we make them available to patients are critical to address i mean and and i think that's what people and even me and i'm working not in drug discovery but i'm kind of you know even for me that's just that's just frustrating and i sort of get i on one level i understand it right there's a you know a cost benefit health economic analysis that somebody that the regulators have to do in a public or semi-public system like that, that has to be done. But in that instance, it's still extremely frustrating. Yeah. I don't fault anyone involved in that. I mean, they were all acting rationally, but ultimately a company like Ori and other innovators in the space need to do our job. We need to be able to be, make those products much more, much more cheaply and much more widely available so that the costs can come down. Eventually, you know, as we have more and more of them available, we'll be able to bring costs down and serve more patients. But that's what happens in every industry, those right? Are, pretty much, right? Basic that's economics, right? Yeah, yeah. You have innovators that come up with a particular product or well, more in the product space right you have it starts really small and they work out how to get it together and then whether that's on the bench or somewhere else and then they do small batches and then at some point they either build out their own manufacturing capability or they outsource to a contract manufacturer it happens yep. in diagnostics happens everywhere right mm-hmm. it's just exactly. like in this instance there's just such a high i guess bar on the biology aspect of it that makes it harder initially to sort of yeah, I think we're we're in that kind of technology adoption development curve where we have to figure this out, um, and we'll get there. Um, but ultimately, we're in a race against time uh, for many of those patients who could today benefit mm-hmm. from the therapies but can't get them. That makes sense. So we're going to go for our last commercial break, and then we're going to come back for two minutes, and we're going to talk about something else, which mm-hmm. will be wonderful, and we can then have a, have a fantastic last 20 minutes of the show. So we'll be back in two minutes with today's guest, Jason C. Foster from Ori Biotech. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good.
A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. A for horses, B for mutton, Seymour Cheeks, dig for victory, E UK Health Radio and Health Triangle Magazine. Each is good by itself, but enjoying both is always better. Add Health Triangle Magazine to your monthly health regime. Check it out at UKHealthRadio.com. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome to the last part of this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest today, Jason C. Foster, CEO of Ori Biotech. So um, I want to change change up subject a little bit now, and um, I want to kind of come back around to to you and um, the support function, unofficial kind of support function that you play to lots of health tech businesses, whether you invested or whether you support or whatever. And like, how, how did that, was that always something that you wanted to do? Did it organically start? And like, why is it, well, I guess it is important to you because you do it. So, you know, <laughs> what, 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 what's, yeah. What is, why is it important to you? Yeah, it's interesting. It, it did kind of evolve organically to some degree. Um, you know, I think, we're lucky working in healthcare. You feel like you can get passionate about things that help, um, help human health and help people. That's something that I've always worked in for the last 25 years post business school. So I started out working in Merck, the big pharmaceutical company in the, in the U S um, got, was lucky to be introduced to, um, a small molecule pharm- pharmaceutical business. So one of those tablet manufacturers, Okay. Uh, that was actually operating in uh, opioid dependence. So people that were addicted to pain medication or potentially heroin uh, as an alternative to methadone. Most people know what okay. methadone is. Yeah. Um, and that was a highly stigmatized disease area, as you can, as you would understand, you know, certainly addiction. Then. Yeah. Especially, you know, t- this is 2006. Yeah. Um, and there's only a few of us and we were kind of on a crusade to support these patients and try and get access to medication. It sounds very familiar, probably. Um, for this underserved population. And we did yeah. a reasonably good job in the U.S. And as you can tell by my funny accent, I'm an American. They shipped me over here <laughs> in, 2000, in 2010 to, to help the European operation get up a, off okay. the ground. And London's become our home. My, my wife was five months pregnant when we moved. Um, we had a two-year-old. Now she's 15 and he's 12. Wow. Um, and they have very posh British accents. So they're, oh, thank they speak thank the, goodness. They speak, yeah, thank, they speak thank the, goodness. The King's English, I'll say now, instead, <laughs> yeah. Of, yeah, it's, uh, it's instead of that funny, funny dialect that I speak. But um, yeah. yeah, so I, I mean, I had a history of helping to build that business from five people to 1100. And, you know, we listed that business in 2014. And when you're a big business, um, I always tell my founders, you know, the problem with a successful small business, is it becomes a big business. Um, you know, you have all these other competing demands. You can't just do what's right for the patient or just do what's right. right for what you're trying to do, which you and I might be able to do more of at this stage in our development. So I wanted to kind of get out of that big company uh, and back into my roots and, and helping entrepreneurs and helping to build businesses. So in 2016, started investing as an angel, um, started meeting 
founders and startups offering to help where I could. Uh, I, I currently have a portfolio of 13 companies that I've invested in. I sit on the board of four of them. Uh, and so work very hard to try and help those founders and those teams and, and anyone else I come across in the health tech universe. Uh, because I think, you know, ultimately healthcare is one of the last industries to be disrupted by technology. You know, we're, yeah. there's inertia built into the healthcare system, as you know, um, yeah. that for some good reasons that say that, well, if we move too fast, potentially people get hurt. Uh, but the fact that uh, the NHS remains one of the um, highest global purchasers of fax machines and beepers. Is that right? I can believe the beepers. I didn't know the fax machines. <laughs> yeah. That's a great stat. That's, it's prob- that's, it's that's probably great. not indicative of where we should be on the technology adoption curve in healthcare. Yeah. So I feel like, yeah, I mean, just the ability to hopefully give some advice and having been there and done that, offer some connections and where we can, you know, we financing and, and fundraising is part of the lifeblood of a startup. So I have a very good network in the US and the UK of of very focused health healthcare investors. And together we try and build great businesses. So that's uh some of the some of the businesses and entrepreneurs I've been lucky to to uh partner with, like Grippable, which is a neuro rehabilitation <laughs> platform, um uh, looking at stroke and traumatic brain injury, credentially, which is trying to solve some of the staffing crisis in the NHS to bring doctors and nurses and pharmacists and all the other people to where they need to be. Yeah. Um, so that's all kind of, that's been my expertise. I'd, I'd be no use to like a FinTech business or a, a climate, <laughs> climate tech business. I don't have any idea what I'm doing over there. Um, and so like, what are the kind of, consi- what, what are the consistent things that you sort of look for in founders that you invest in? Because you, to those of you who don't know, angel investing is pretty much at the beginning of any startups fundraising journey so it's very very early often or more often than not pre-product you know maybe are just off the back of a presentation depends right so really you're investing kind of on the team and on the market and on the feeling that you get so what is it that you sort of look for yeah that kind of angel stage or pre-seed they call friends family and fools so i, yeah, I, I don't know which one i am i'm usually the latter i, I guess but yeah i'm not investing yeah. in my my family's company so i'm the fool but yeah no super early um you know really looking for um you know dynamism in the founding team that really sort of has a passion for the challenge and you know because as you know very well it's hard it's really hard yeah. it's been super hard in the last three years um, sometimes you can do everything right and still the market just doesn't cooperate. Um, so yeah. you want, you know, you need that resilience, you need that determination. Uh, but you also need, you know, for me, a, a an initial or kind of an immediate killer is some, a, a team that doesn't listen. You know, they, if they come to it for okay. advice and they want to, they, they want you to help. And then you tell them a few things, you try and make an introduction, they don't follow up or they don't listen to the advice. And that's fine. Your job as a, as a, uh, health tech or entrepreneur is to, separate the wheat from the chaff you know there's you're gonna get a lot of advice your job is to figure out what's good and but ultimately you want to make sure that you know you're making value-added connections and yeah uh, that you're moving and, the and business how, forward. How, how often does it happen that you get introduced to someone or you meet somebody and it plays out like you just mentioned you know like they say this is what i'm doing and you're like well i don't know about that a little bit like with us right like you mm. weren't you know you weren't like crazy hot to begin with about what we were doing you know what i mean and it's like fair enough right i took it yeah. on board yeah. and whatever that's you know, right. stay in touch. It's like not the end of the world, right? People are going to, I mean, you're going to hear no, and I'm not sure a lot more than you're going to hear, oh my God, that's awesome, especially at the beginning. So how yeah. often does that kind of happen where like people take, kind of take the hump or? Um, I think a lot of times the health tech founders that I meet are, they kind of fall into two buckets. One is they they were clinical. They had sort of a, they identified a problem in the system and said, well, I can help fix that. 
the other side is technical. So I've got a kind of technology and I'm trying to find a place, a home where that technology right. could, could add value. Yeah. Um, I find that both of those kind of purely are a little bit difficult because you have such a kind of a perspective that this is my experience and this has to be right. And I know that this is a problem, but maybe it's not a problem for everyone, or maybe it's not a big enough problem for payers to worry about it, or maybe your solution isn't quite right. Uh, And oftentimes technologists focused on technology. Yeah, of course they do, but no one cares about technology. I don't care about the technology that you're bringing me. What I care about is, does it solve my problem? If it solves my problem, and a big enough problem for me to worry about, then I might open my checkbook or I might introduce you to someone who has a checkbook that they can open that for for you. So a lot of times it's, you know, it's difficult because um, we have a technology in search for a problem or, you know, maybe that's just not the right answer. You know, in the NHS in particular, in the UK in particular, it's an incredibly difficult customer. You know, we oh always God. say, you know, there's no such thing as the National Health Service. There's 10,000 payers in the NHS system uh, and clinicians can say no, but they can't say yes. So you might find a doctor who's really hot on your technology and says, yeah, I'd love to try it out in my hospital and my GP practice or whatever. And they say, this is great, but they don't pay the bills. They're not the one who's ultimately going to buy your technology. And as you know, then this kind of disjointedness of value versus who pays the bill, it can be incredibly difficult. So it's some of those lessons that have been learned the hard way selling into the NHS for many years um, that if not listened to up front, you're going to cause yourself a lot of extra pain and suffering. And I'd say it's more common than not where the idea maybe isn't quite right or the market product market fit isn't quite right or you're not solving a big enough problem. And they listen, but they don't always act. And I think that right. also often will waste a lot of time, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the um, you know, I come from a sort of private background, right? Not not necessarily an NHS background. So, but the, the, you know, when we went out, because before you start developing a medical device, you, you you have to build out your user requirements. Mm-hmm. So, you're, you're, you know, it's sort of laid out in ISO 13485, but how you develop this stuff, like it's all, uh, no, all laid out. too much about that, yeah. Yeah, I know. That's a whole <laughs> different show that probably no one would listen to. Yeah. But the, um, so the, you know, we went out and spoke to clinicians and all this other stuff. And we're laying out all the requirements about how, you know, clinical accuracy levels and usability and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And like everyone that we spoke to in GP land pretty much was like, oh, wow, this is great. You know, um, and, and as we sort of kept on following up with them, the biggest question was, you know, have you got funding? And I'm like, I, that was like, what, what, what do you mean? Have I got you're supposed to pay me? Why are you asking me if I've got funding? Yeah. I'm yeah. expecting you to pay me. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they're like, well, no, we can't pay you. Like you just said, we're not going to pay you, but yeah. we'll do it if you've got funding. And I'm like, wait, so what you're saying is you'll try it if I give it to you for free. That's they're like, correct. yeah, I'm like, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is a losing around. business model. That is a losing <laughs> yeah, business model for sure. I'll come back around <laughs> to that one once I, uh, once I exhaust all the other possible options about like, exactly. you know, not giving it away for free. But I do think that that's exactly right. And, you know, the, I think that there are some businesses that work really, really well within the NHS, so staffing, you know, mm-hmm. one like, it's like Locum's Nest, and I've heard about credentially, like, clearly yeah. that's a, that's a, that's a within an NHS solution, right? Because you're dealing yes. with NHS staff, like there's not, that's within the system and has to be probably solved within the system. Mm-hmm. Because I think there's a whole bunch of other stuff where there's, it, it shouldn't just be your only customer. And if it is your only customer, then buckle up, man, because you're yeah. going for yeah. it. It's a long, bumpy ride. ride. <laughs> yes. for sure. Well, even, even things that are maybe a little bit more obvious. So, you know, digital health records, right? So right. this has been a big push for a long time, very political, very painful. And in, even in the US, I mean, it's they sort of mandated this happen and it still didn't happen. But the last statistic I saw, and it's probably not this anymore, hopefully, but 60% of the health records in the UK are still on paper. 
60 percent six zero six zero can you imagine i i hope it's not that i hope i got the wrong stat and i hope it's maybe 40 percent, but it's still a lot it's a big proportion That's and a lot of the technologies that we see are trying to leverage that data to, <laughs> to make information out of it for the clinician for the patient like to take control of their health care and yeah and these solutions are probably well ahead of their time if you've got less than half the the patient right. records in the uk digitized but that's the issue is like you're suddenly between two posts right it's like yeah. half the system's doing it this way and half the system's doing it that way so you've got two systems that you have exactly. to kind of maintain and try and sort of keep going and it actually ends up increasing friction in the system because what yeah. you think's yeah. over there is actually over, oh my goodness that's yeah. yeah yeah that's that's difficult it's incredibly difficult and you know i think it's, it's not a reason for uh, innovators to get disheartened. But as you said, you got to buck, buckle up for a long journey and uh, make sure that you've got the right value proposition. It's, you know, are we solving the right problem for the right person who has the ability and willingness to pay? Oftentimes the, you know, these ideas fall over at that, at that hurdle, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I remember when we started, we spent a lot of time speaking to GPs and GPs love it, right? Conceptually. Mm -hmm. Wow. I can do a blood test right there and then in my surgery and I get the results right there and then. And I can treat that person right there and then. I'm like, Sounds great. yes, yeah. yes, yes. Ding, mm -hmm. ding, ding. That's all great. And they were like, cool. And I was like, yeah, hand it over. And then, yeah, and they're like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you go, and they're like, well, you're going to need to, going to need to find some funding. And it's like, okay, how do we do that? And they're like, I, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you yeah. can talk to public health. I was like, well, uh, I could. Yes, that's uh, I could do that. Oh. Um, you know, so I, th I think for us, I, and, and I, I've heard this from other innovators as well in the space, is that finding your pathway within the NHS, you mm -hmm. know, is it takes some time and figuring out. And, and also there's a longitudinal aspect. So just because the system doesn't think it's important at this particular point, that doesn't mean that it won't in six months or 12 months or 18 right. months. But right. obviously that can flip back around on you again. Right. It, it's constantly changing. Um, okay. But, yeah, it's um, I think trying to figure for us working out which we've done you know the sort of blend of yes if we can work with the nhs we'd love to but actually private you know out of pocket private you know, b2b yeah. stuff yeah is is, mm -hmm. is is an area where it's just far easier to scale and yeah. economics and decision making processes are clearer simpler easier but that doesn't necessarily you know it's a sh it, it would be great if it wasn't that way but it, it just is yeah. yeah yeah no i mean it's it it's hard, right? There's no right answer. The The U.S. healthcare system spends on average like 14 grand per patient for worse outcomes. I think the, the average, right? the, the, average right? in the UK is like two or three grand per patient per year for markedly better outcomes. So it's not is like the U.S. Right? system is better. Yeah. And the global table, the U.S. is not, it's not in the Whoa. top 15, uh, but they spend massively more. So, you know, oh just throw more money I didn't, at the I didn't know. I just, yeah. I didn't know. It was, but I didn't know. I knew they paid more, right? Yeah, but, I didn't know like the outcomes were. I mean, having lived in both systems though, and you feel you know you feel the benefit of being able to rock up and get treatment that day, you know, on demand in the U.S. Whereas here, you might not be able to do that. Uh, but ultimately, we're getting better outcomes in the U.K. for less. Um, so there's method to their madness. But as an entrepreneur trying to, you know, you're really trying to improve things. You can see a, a path to deliver better outcomes for lower costs. Uh, but the system, you know, just is not that easy to navigate, as you said. So I mean. It, it's incredibly you, difficult, but you got to find your pair as you, as you guys did, you got to find the pathway that's going to work and then really go all in on it. Yeah. And so as far as the NHS is concerned, like where do you stand on this sort of like, you know, because obviously in the news, like it gets bashed all the time and sometimes it bashes itself all the time or, you know, yeah. and, and NHS people will stand up and quite rightly will say stuff around waiting times and backlogs and record this and people on, 
trolleys in A&E for, for, mm-hmm. for 24 hours, which is obviously horrendous and, and things like that. But like in the round, how where do you stand on sort of how bad it is versus versus comparators, you know, and, and yeah. like this this idea of, well, on the one side of things, we need to make it much, much more efficient and that will yield cost savings. And on the kind of the other extreme of the debate, it's like, no, you just need to give us a lot more cash and yeah. that will solve yeah. it. Like, yeah. what's your thoughts on that? I mean, the numbers I just quoted would, would suggest we're doing a reasonably good job in the UK. Um, right. Where I think there might be opportunity, and this is kind of a boring sort of economics uh, issue, which is the, you know, kind of free rider problem. It's when healthcare is a right and it's free, I will use as much of it as I can, as freely as I can. So you get a yeah. lot of free riders in the economic terms and, you know, using services, using, you know, taking services out of the system that maybe they don't need or that they don't mm-hmm. need then or, and so my my sense, and this is again as a capitalist uh, American, you can throw digital tomatoes at me if you want, but I, there is some personal responsibility for sharing some of the costs that I incur as a utilizer of healthcare. Mm-hmm. So whether it's a copay or a coinsurance, or you know, there's some very very small things that have been done in the UK at this, but you know, there should be some consequence to not turning up for an appointment. There should be some consequence for using services that or not appropriate or too much of them or filling prescriptions you didn't need or all the things that in the system. And that potentially, you know, along with the, the rational curves that are already there mm. around utilization, like, you know, it's, it's not necessarily uh, a bad thing that people need to wait a month for a hip replacement, but should they have to wait three years? No. You know, so it's sort right. of these things where you say, we can't treat everybody with every therapy all the time. We yeah. have to make decisions. We have to limit what's available and if we did more of the ba- basic preventative maintenance, you know, looking at the the people, the 20% that drag 80% of the costs out of the system, we could probably have a pretty big impact by being smart in the way we direct our attention, direct our investment. That makes sense to me. On that note, Jason, we've reached the end of the show. So it was wonderful to have you on. I, like I had a blast, especially because this was the first live show for 2023. So I want to say thank you very much to Jason C. Foster from Ori Biotech for coming on. If people want to learn more about Ori Biotech, how do they find out about it? Just go to our website or um, ping me on LinkedIn, Jason C. Foster. Um, the C is a branding element. There's too many boring Jason Fosters in the world. But, um, <laughs> I, I just go by Jason normally. Um, but yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm very happy to uh, to talk to any founders, entrepreneurs, or others out there that are interested in anything we've talked about today. Brilliant. Jason, thank you so much for your time. And thank you to everyone for listening. We'll be back again next week. Thanks, Steve. Really appreciate you having me. We were good. We will go, kind of dream that can't be so. We were right till we weren't. Built a home and watched it burn. Mm, I didn't want to leave you. I didn't want to lie. Started to cry, but then remembered I. I can buy.